Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. Tis the season of love. In the United States, Britain, Canada, and Australia, as well as some parts of Argentina, France, Mexico, South Korea, and the Philippines, we are celebrating Valentine's Day this week. And so, I thought it'd be valuable in the coming year to discuss the history of courtship in the West. To get to that series of episodes, I wanted to start off with this episode, a discussion of some of the biggest medieval courtship disasters from history and literature. Ignominious fails of kingdom-breaking proportions forever carved into the stone tablets of legend. The insights from these tragic tales of love and loss may grant you insights into what pitfalls to avoid in your own love life, lest your romance ends with a line like, For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. This episode is not as serious as our usual fare, so I hope you sit back, relax, and have fun. Our first tale of courtship gone awry is Olga of Kiev and Prince Mal. Olga was a 10th century Viking princess. She'd been happily married to Prince Igor, the heir to the Rurik dynasty of the Russian Tsars. The pair of them took the throne to rule over the Kievan Rus in 912. Unfortunately, their union was cruelly torn asunder when the Dravelians, a Slavic tribe under their control, refused to give Igor tribute. Igor went to them personally to demand the tribute, and they killed him for it. And not just a regular, you know, stab him with a sword kind of killing. They made him into a human hammock by tying his arms to a bent birch tree and his legs to a different bent birch tree. Once he was all tied up, the Dravillians let the trees go and the trees straightened out and ripped Igor in half. With Olga now single, Prince Mal of the Dravillians decided to shoot his shot and marry the chick whose husband his tribe had just murdered. He sent envoys to deliver the marriage proposition to Olga to see what she thought about the union. According to the 12th century book that contains this history, the Primary Chronicles, quote, Olga gave command that a large deep ditch should be dug in the castle within the hall outside the city. Thus on the morrow, Olga, as she sat in the hall, sent for the strangers, and her messengers approached them and said, Olga summons you to great honor. But they replied, We will not ride on horseback nor in wagons, nor go on foot. Carry us in our boats. So they carried the Dervillians in their boats. The latter sat on the cross benches in great robes, puffed with great pride. Thus they were borne into the court before Olga, and when the men had brought the Dravillians in, they dropped them into the trench along with the boat. Olga bent over and inquired whether they found the honor to their taste. They answered that it was worse than the death of Igor. She then commanded that they should be buried alive, and thus they were buried. Having buried the haughty messengers, Olga wasn't quite done with her revenge. She sent envoys to Prince Mal, saying she would consider a marriage proposal if it was delivered not by mere peasants, but by his nobles. Not having heard about the fate of the prior messengers, Mal sent his chieftains. When they arrived, Olga invited them into the bathhouse to relax. As they lowered themselves into the hot, steamy water, Olga barred the doors, turned up the heat. She lit the bathhouse on fire, killing the men inside. Not having told Mal what happened to the chieftains, she invited him as her date to a funeral feast for her dead husband. Now guys, a word of advice. If a girl ever invites you as her date to her husband's funeral, that's a major red flag. 
Now, she held the funeral where Igor had died, and so the Drivlians were the primary attendants of the event. The booze flowed freely all night long, and when everyone was drunk, Olga's soldiers came in and killed them all. Mal, that poor, sad sod, never had a chance. But don't worry, Mal, you're not alone. Here's a little bonus story. Years later, with Olga's revenge complete, and having repented of her murderous ways, she was on the path to become a Christian. And she found herself drawing the attention of another unfortunate suitor while negotiating a trade deal in Constantinople. She had caught the eye of the Byzantine emperor himself, Constantine VII. Constantine proposed to Olga that they be wed, but she needed to be baptized first. Unfortunately for him, Olga didn't want to marry him and forfeit control of her vast empire that she, Igor, and her son had worked so hard to maintain. Yet she still wanted to be baptized, so seeing an opportunity to play off his vanity and trick him, she said she only wanted to be baptized if the greatest lord in Constantinople would be her godfather. Realizing he was the greatest lord, Constantine volunteered himself to be the godfather. According to the primary chronicle, after the patriarch performed the baptism, the emperor summoned Olga and made known to her that she should now become his wife. She flatly replied, How can you marry me after yourself baptizing me and calling me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful, as you yourself must know. The emperor smiled ruefully and said, Olga, you have outwitted me. He then gave her many gifts of gold, silver, silks, and various vases, and dismissed her, still calling her his daughter. And thus, crafty Olga avoided another unwanted courtship, and preserved her empire and her marriage to Igor into the realms of glory. Our second tale of courtship's biggest fails comes from the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. This story about the 5th century Anglo-Saxon-British-Roman knights of legend was originally concocted in the 12th century book called The Knight of the Cart. It was written by Crétin de Troyes at the behest of Marie de Champagne of France. This was not the first book about Arthur or even Guinevere, but it was the first about the relationship between Lancelot and Guinevere, which is why I'm picking on it for this episode. The patroness of this work, Marie, was the daughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine, a woman who had managed to become the Queen of France, divorce Queen Louis the, King Louis VII, and then marry the King of England, who was Henry II. Talk about catching a rebound. Anyway, Eleanor and Marie both loved romance stories, and wielding their influence in the courts of both France and England, they managed to commission many romance stories, thus birthing a genre of medieval romance centuries before Anne Radcliffe, Charlotte Bronte, or Jane Austen would come onto the scene. The author, Chetien, on the other hand, seemed to be a little embarrassed about his work, not even being able to finish it and writing a note that Marie told him to include its various embarrassing elements. In spite of this, The Knight of the Cart was a huge hit and has since been remixed and readapted thousands of times. The story belongs to a literary genre of the High Middle Ages called courtly love. This conventionalized genre had a very specific set of rules. One, the love was always between a brave knight in shining armor and a noble woman. Two, the woman was in some way inaccessible, often because of something pesky like being married. Three, the knight would perform acts of bravery, devotion, and self-sacrifice to give glory to the woman. Four, the knight would carry with him a token of the woman to remember her by and keep it close to his heart. 
Five, the knight and woman must keep their love a secret because once it comes out, at worst, it causes a huge scandal, and at best, it makes the affair boring if everyone knew about it and was cool with it. Lastly, number six, in the etiquette of these romances, women held all the power, demanding absolutely absurd levels of devotion from their knights and dismissing them for the tiniest of slights. You'll see all of these elements in the story as I briefly recount it. The story starts with Guinevere being married to King Arthur. She is intelligent, friendly, and genteel. All the guys, they just love her. So much so that a mysterious evil knight challenges Arthur to send forth his best knight to compete in a joust for the hand of Lady Guinevere. Eager to kill himself for someone else's wife, a common theme in this story, Sir Kay begs King Arthur to be the, the queen's champion. In a Farquaad-esque fashion, Arthur agrees. Kay, though, is an incompetent braggart, and he is defeated in a humiliating way. The mysterious knight kidnaps Guinevere and takes her to his castle. Having just heard the news that the queen has been taken, Sir Gawain and Sir Lancelot begin a frantic race to see who can rescue the queen first. Talk about desperate. Arthur doesn't even go! Anyway, as Lancelot furiously rides, trying to catch up with the mysterious knight, he clutches close to his heart Guinevere's comb with a few strands of her golden hair. He thinks of her glorious locks. This propels him forward to overcome all sorts of random obstacles and challenges that he faces on his path, like the Bridge of Swords and such. Unfortunately, Lancelot rides so fast that he kills his horse. A nearby dwarf with a cart sees Lancelot and his horse die, and so he asks Lancelot where he's headed to and if he'd like a ride. Lancelot explains that he was chasing a mysterious knight. The dwarf replies that he actually knows who the knight is and where the knight is going. And so the dwarf asks if Lancelot would like a ride in the back of the cart. Lancelot hesitates for two seconds because apparently back then only criminals would ride in the back of a cart like this. So it'd be pretty embarrassing for a knight like him to do so. Alas, seeing no other way to get to Guinevere in a timely manner, he decided to overcome his pride and take a ride in the cart. The dwarf takes him to the knight who turns out to be Sir Melagent in his own castle, where Lancelot and him duel and Lancelot defeats Sir Melagent. Reunited with Guinevere, Lancelot tells her everything that happened to him on his journey. Instead of being grateful, she suddenly becomes cold to him and very unimpressed. What's wrong, my love? Lancelot pleads. Paraphrasing, she says, You hesitated for two seconds to get in the cart? What is wrong with you? I could have been saved two seconds earlier. In the book, she states, quote, In truth, he has wasted his efforts. I shall always deny that I feel any gratitude towards him. Close quote. Lancelot does not question this reaction at first. Indeed, he believes that she, if she's angry with him, she's justified. This is just so pathetic and toxic, it's like watching dating advice on TikTok. Look, if you kill your horse and risk your life to save someone, and they can't muster up a modicum of gratitude, it's a big red flag. And for the purposes of this podcast, it's a major courtship fail. And so I, Douglas Archway, would like to state for the record that I consider the legendary millennia-old story of Guinevere and Lancelot to be a cringe failure of romance. Lancelot is written in this story to be the epitome of courtly love. In other words, he's coming across as a pathetic simp. In a later adaptation, Lord Tennyson encapsulates Lancelot's simpfulness with these poetic words. 
As she fled fast through sun and shade, the happy winds upon her played. Blowing the ringlet from the braid, she looked so lovely as she swayed, the rain with dainty fingertips. A man had given all other bliss, and all his worldly worth for this, to waste his whole heart in one kiss upon her perfect lips. Our third tale of a historical love disaster comes from the 13th century in Italy. It's the story of Paolo Malatesta and Francesca da Polenta. This story is wonderfully written on owlcation.com, of which I'm loosely paraphrasing here. Paolo Malatesta was the third son of the Lord of Rimini. He was a handsome man, not really interested in politics, but he was a brave warrior and a leader in battle. He was also a loyal son, and he had his own wife and children already. Francesca da Polenta was the beautiful young daughter of Guido I, Lord of Ravenna, and as such, she was seen as a diplomatic pawn in the power games of Italian noblemen of the 13th century. When Guido needed to make peace with Lord Rimini, he decided to seal the deal by marrying his daughter Francesca off to Malatesta's oldest son, a bachelor named Giovanni. Giovanni was described as uncouth and deformed. His nickname was Lo Shancato, which means crippled or lame. It may simply be that he had a slight limp, as his condition did not impair his ability to fight on behalf of his father. Whichever the case, Guido figured that his romantic young daughter would not welcome this ugly old cripple as her husband, so he invited the handsome younger brother, Paolo, to serve as a proxy at the wedding. Francesca fell hard for the dashing young Paolo, and must have thought herself the luckiest girl in the world, so we can only imagine her feelings of horror when she awoke on the morning after her wedding night to find herself lying beside the deformed Giovanni instead. Presumably, the two brothers had switched places in the darkened bedroom sometime during the night. Don't fear, Francesca, for history tells us that eventually she did get to sleep with Paolo for real. Many times, in fact. Unfortunately for them, one time Giovanni caught them, and that was enough. It is recorded on that fateful day that Giovanni had been told by a servant that Paolo was in his wife's room. Going upstairs to check on her, Giovanni found his wife's bedroom door locked. He demanded to be admitted. Paolo leapt towards a trap door in the floor as Francesca went to open the door. However, Francesca opened the door before ensuring that Paolo had made a clean getaway. Paolo's jacket had caught on the trap door and he had been unable to free himself. Giovanni ran at Paolo with his rapier. Francesca, in a frenzy to save her lover, threw herself in front of Giovanni's sword and was fatally stabbed. Giovanni, in despair at inadvertently killing his woman, withdrew his sword from her chest and then ran Paolo through with it, killing him instantly. The lovers were buried together, and Giovanni was acquitted of all charges. But the love story of Paolo and Francesca did not end there. It was picked up by a contemporary, a politician in Florence, who had recently been exiled and wanted to write a book. Dante Alighieri, the great poet, took the story of Paolo and Francesca and wove it into his famous poem, The Divine Comedy. In Canto V of the Inferno section, Dante, accompanied by Virgil, meets the spirits of Paolo and Francesca as they're swept about by eternal winds, punished forever for their sin of uncontrollable lust. Francesca explained to Dante that the two of them couldn't resist each other because they'd been reading the adulterous romance of Lancelot and Guinevere together. Dante sympathized with that, and he told Virgil that maybe these two shouldn't be in hell after all. At this, Virgil reminded Dante that people in hell, as a general rule, are not very honest, and Dante shouldn't be so gullible. 
these two had corrupted love, turning it into a selfish endeavor of pleasure instead of its true purpose. In doing so, they tore their families apart and left a smoldering crater in their wake. And for that, they make it into my list of medieval courtship disasters. Our final tale of courtship's fails is of Eloise and Abelard. This is a true story from 12th century Paris, with love letters and tombs to prove it. This one is truly heartbreaking, and while it is a fail in some ways, it's not because of anyone being particularly pathetic, more so bad timing. According to Abelard and Eloise.com, in 12th century Paris, the intellectually gifted young Eloise, the niece of Notre Dame's canon Fulbert, strives for knowledge, truth, and the answer to the question of human existence. It soon becomes apparent that only one teacher in Paris can provide the education that she seeks. Though twenty years her senior, Abelard quickly becomes intrigued by Eloise's uncommon wit and intelligence, for Eloise is on par with Abelard. They soon find themselves so entwined that neither can resist the spiritual and physical desires of their bodies, yet they both know that the laws of the time can forbid such a relationship. Their physical love and the strength of their passion proved to be a power impossible to resist. When Eloise became pregnant, they decided it wasn't safe for her to remain in Paris any longer. They fled to Brittany, Abelard's place of birth. In a scheme to protect the dignity of his fallen niece and return Eloise to his home, Canon Fulbert arranged a secret marriage between Eloise and Abelard. But shortly after the two lovers were wed, they discovered that Fulbert's true plot was to ruin Abelard and keep Eloise for himself. For her safety, Eloise escaped to the convent at Argenteuil, but it was too late for Abelard, and he was brutally attacked in Paris. Now, that website won't tell you this, but it was that attack where Abelard was castrated. In shame, he decided to embrace a monastic life and become a monk at the royal abbey of Saint-Denis near Paris. Meanwhile, Eloise gave birth at the abbey to a healthy baby boy and named him Astrolabe after the device used to chart the stars. Her father forced her to give the child up and made Eloise become a nun at Argenteuil. The newly minted monk and nun then did something truly extraordinary. They struck up a legendary correspondence over the twenty years of their lives. They sent letters to each other's abbeys, and in these letters you can see their love continuing to flourish in spite of being separated. You also see the respect that they have for each other, intellectually, physically, and spiritually. It's obviously apparent how infatuated they were with one another. After many years passed, in a chance meeting, Eloise and Abelard are briefly reunited at a ceremony in Paris. Though they've been physically apart all these years, at last in the sight of the other, the former lovers realize that the love they share is the reason for human existence. As the ceremony begins, they promise one another to remain forever one. Six hundred years later, Josephine Bonaparte, the wife of Napoleon, was so moved by their story that she ordered that the remains of Abelard and Eloise be entombed together at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. To this day, lovers from all over the world visit the tomb where the remains of Eloise and Abelard rest eternally together. And so, maybe this story wasn't a fail after all. Maybe it's the ideal. Regardless, naming their son Astrolabe was very on the nose. It's fitting, since in history and literature you'd be hard-pressed to find a pair more befitting the term star-crossed lovers, 
a phrase from Shakespeare connoting lovers whose love is cursed by the stars. Fate itself seemed against these two. Nevertheless, they overcame it all. And with that comforting thought, I wish you all a very happy month of love and romance. May the stars shine on your own romantic endeavors. Remember, look out for red flags so you don't get steamrolled by the Olgas of the world. Don't be a pathetic simp like Lancelot. Don't be adulterous and selfish like Paolo and Francesca. And if life does screw up your romance, remember, your romance can always blossom again, as it did with Eloise and Avalard. With that, my friends, I will end my episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and share with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the sources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.